welcome to Regeneratively Speaking, a podcast brought to you by the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I'm Katherine Drinkett. And I'm Joshua Huntsberger. In each episode, we bring you interviews with guest researchers and our institute's faculty covering the latest cutting-edge research on regenerative medicine. Our guest today is Dr. Richard Baird, uh, who is Director of the Division of Interdisciplinary Training at the National Institute of Biomedical Imaging and Bioengineering, NIBIB, at the National Institutes of Health. Welcome. Thank you. So I was wondering if you could start off telling us a little bit about the work you do at your institute. Well, basically, we're the, the first stop on the way into the National Institute of Biomedical Imaging and Bioengineering. So everything from high school students to medical residents, um, education programs, conferences, research training, and career development come through training, the training division first, and then we hand them off to the appropriate scientific divisions as they develop research independence or ready to start their own laboratory. Ah, Great. So I I have some follow-up questions. So, for instance, how have you worked to increase diversity in science? Could you speak to that? Sure. Um, I mean, I'm a diversity catalyst for all of NIH, where we're looking to, to increase diversity because we recognize that the efforts for the last 20 or 30 years, while well-intentioned, haven't shifted the numbers much. Yeah. Um, we're looking, obviously, there's been a, some new NIH programs that are trying to address that or trying to identify new innovative approaches. For us as an institute, I fund contract and have for several years with UMBC uh, and also with Savannah State University. And looking at the, at the early stages of the pipeline, what do we need in terms of strong mentoring and early research experiences to yeah. help these kids succeed and, and attract them into STEM areas? After that, in our normal day, uh, day-to-day uh, business, We do take a lot of people at different career stages, from graduate students up to early faculty, and help them moving through the pipeline. But the biggest problem is that it's a thin pipeline, is that we need Mm. to get more people into it. And that's what I'm focusing on with this contract, which is co-funded by another institute, and we're hoping to take the next steps next May. We've been supporting some diversity students for four years until they graduate, and then looking at what, how this program worked in terms of their graduation rate, academic performance, and their post-graduation decisions. What hmm. did they decide to do? Did they stay in research? Did we convince them that it's a good <laughs> thing to do? Um, and if we, so depending on the evaluation that comes out of that, we'll decide what the next steps will be. But it is a shifting landscape right now, and a lot of people are devoted to solving this problem. So I'm hoping to put together a grand coalition or partnership of a number of agencies to move ahead, you know, using the lessons that we've learned. Great. In that and then one other, um, what career development and research and education programs that you've directed at NIB IB have been most successful? Are the ones that come to mind as, you know, we've been able to do this right and this is... I, I think the K-99 awards, the so-called Kangaroo Awards, have been very successful. We get a lot of those. Um, It was a struggle at first for us, uh, both at our institute and across NIH, because it requires a lot of micromanagement and hand-holding. We're basically looking at the startup packages that these people receive when they get academic positions and helping them through that process, but not going over the line to be their advocates 
you know, in negotiations with a position, but evaluating how much independence they're going to have, whether they're getting the help from that new department that they're moving into, that they're going to be successful. And I think it's been extremely, you know, good. As most of our K awards, our so-called career development awards, are now K-99s okay. as an institute. I also developed, outside of our institute, the Early Independence Program, and that's, uh, the, that's from uh, Francis Collins wanted to see this done for graduate students who were not going to do a, a typical postdoc. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'll be honest, I don't think that's worked as well. We knew yeah. it was going to be a small niche market because not many graduate students are ready, either from a scientific point of view or an administrative point of view, in handling their own laboratory ahead. So it was still sort of a mentored kind of award with more independence than you would yeah. normally get. And it's been an awkward target to try to hit. We have made some good awards, but by and large there's been some confusion about the levels that we fund. We've been funding some people who really are already faculty members or independent fellows of a sort. We were hoping to reach a slightly earlier stage of development. And so that's undergoing now. I can't say where that's yeah. going to go, but there's been discussions at NIH about that. Uh, and then there's been some other diversity uh, programs in neuroscience that I've been involved with. And I think the biggest thing that there is that I've been very um, devoted to try to develop regional partnerships, which I think are the most effective way of doing this not to have lots of diversity programs within an institution, but we can't recapitulate all of the infrastructure and mentors you need around the entire country. Yeah. What we should do is look at regional partnerships and see how minority-serving institutions can work more effectively with research-intensive institutions. And so that's what I've been kind of devoted in all the things I do in diversity. Great. Well, just, just a couple of examples. So we have many young scientists who follow this podcast. Could you provide some advice for them on developing their own careers? Hmm. Stay open <clears throat> to as many things as possible. I think uh, multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary training, try to expose yourself or learn the language, customs, and science of a, of a number of disciplines that are going to be affecting your area. Think about the clinical and translational outcomes. Try to get some kind of clinical experience if it's relevant to what you're trying to do. Take advantage of each of those national, uh, natural excuse me, transitions between a graduate student and a postdoc, for example, or undergraduate and graduate, and to try to shift your direction a little bit, I think is always a good thing to do. You get awfully so busy doing what you're doing that it's uh, you don't have the time during those natural points during your graduate to, to explore some of these things. And I think you should look at the science and techniques and add as many things to your toolkit as you can. How about experiences in your own career that you'd be willing to share that might assist an aspiring scientist, young scientist? Boy, let's see. That's a little harder. I mean, back in my day, and I don't want to age myself too, uh, date myself too much, they didn't have interdisciplinary programs so much, and so I actually had to take all of the program in electrical engineering and neuroscience and a little bit of biophysics. Nowadays, you could kind of do a lot of that from within a single program at most universities, and so it's a little bit easier. I did know, I was, I was fortunate, I think, and that I knew that I started off in engineering, as I said, but I knew I didn't want to stay there. Um, I realized at an early stage as an undergraduate that I was really interested in applying engineering techniques to biological problems. 
because I thought it was more interesting to understand uh, the body and the brain. I thought they were open-ended problems that really helped people, involved people. And so I worked in Boston. I had the opportunity to work at Mass General Hospital and also take some of the Harvard courses while I was at MIT. And at MIT, you actually have to do an undergraduate thesis. And so I was able to do an undergraduate thesis in the inner ear, which was something I was interested in, actually, at that time, uh, at Mass General Hospital. And that was a real pivotal for me. I knew then that I wanted to go on to a graduate program that was very strong in engineering, but also in biology and neuroscience. And so there's a certain amount of luck involved in all of these things. It helps that you, you, you make the decisions, the right decisions, as early as you can. But then it's a matter of luck, and I think I was very lucky respect, frankly. Uh, but So those were the good things. And then the, the postdoc, I was able to, um, at a meeting, at the right meetings where you go to and you can meet these possible mentors going on to. And I was very lucky that my first talk, actually, that I gave at a national meeting, I happened to meet someone who was one of the top people in vestibular physiology, which is what I was trying to move into. And he offered me a postdoctoral position after my talk, so I guess I, I, was lucky, I was lucky that I didn't mess it up too badly. I think. So it's, uh, um, but yeah, I think I've actually had a pretty fortunate, been pretty fortunate and lucky in my own career. I think the only thing that I did right was I think identifying from the beginning what I was really interested in. But the other things were kind of fell into place after that. Great. So prior. Prior to coming to the NIH, you were recruited um, to the Central Institute for the Deaf, um, CID, in St. Louis, where you were head of Faye and Carl Simon Center for the Biology of Hearing and Deafness, along with being a professor in the Department of Speech and Hearing at Washington University, and an adjunct faculty member of the Departments of Otorlaring and the Anatomy and Neurobiology um, at Washington University School of Medicine. Um, so one of the projects that you worked on here was founding and directing the Inner Ear Consortium. And as I understand it, that's an NIH-funded research center it, it was, su yeah. supporting state-of-the-art uh, core facilities and confocal um, and multi-photon microscopy, electron microscopy, and molecular biology. I was wondering if you could recount a little bit of, of that experience. Uh, well, I, I really felt very good about my time at, at CID. Uh, I wasn't planning to apply for the position. Actually, one of my, my uh, postdoctoral fellows did, and through that they found out about me, and they were looking for a director for the whole center at that time. What, what I liked about it was that it's, CID is a special place that's an oral school for the deaf, as well as a clinic and then a research programs. And hmm. those research programs were typically in cochlear implants into young children. Uh, they were testing the device out in those early days. It hadn't been adopted as much as it is now. But you got to see the value of research, the yeah. outcomes. You got to see uh, how it affected people's lives. Uh, and the challenge to me was they were looking for a biological solution. They wanted to set up a new center to help biologically restore the inner ear in humans and other mammals. And that was something that was just becoming possible. We knew that lower animals could do it, but that we didn't repair or regenerate our ears. And so it was a fascinating place to go to. And I, it was a, it's a very strong neuroscience community in, uh, at WashU. This was right next door to the medical school, basically. 
Um, all of the people I recruited, I was successful in getting them adjunct appointments at there. So there was both, it was being in an academic and also a private institute kind of setting and very successful. Uh, the imaging, we were able to um, get a multi-photon photon, uh, microscope at that time, which was not an off-the-shelf uh, item, and I really enjoyed that. The imaging helped a lot of what we were trying to do. It helped me connect inner-ear researchers at three different universities, which were close by, yeah. all in the St. Louis area. Uh, and so that was really rewarding and helped uh, stitch the whole community together. Yeah. So it was, it was a really great time. We, I was there for about 10 years, and all of it was good, except for the last year or so when things got financially difficult. And I had to do a lot of my time helping uh, all the people I had recruited, which was a large number, uh, into the Washington University system because the Central Institute for the Deaf decided to go back to its core mission of being an oral school mm. for the deaf and to divest itself of the research programs. Uh, this was largely a financial decision, but uh, so that was a tough time, but, but all the part before that, yeah. and, I, and I was glad I was able to, to get people to land on their feet, but all of the years before that, I enjoyed it very much. Very Great. Much. In addition to being a director at NIBIB, uh, we know that you are also a current member of the NIH Big Data to Knowledge and Brain Research through Advancing Innovative Neurotechnologies Working Groups. Could you tell us a little bit more about these two programs? Um, the Big Data is a, obviously we all recognize that bio biologists and other biologically related fields need to have more computational skills. And as uh, NIH recognized that, they formed the Big Data Group. I was on the training uh, side of that, of which we developed about 10 funding mechanisms to start doing this. Uh, a lot of them are managed, actually, by my own home institute at NIBIB. And so that's been good in the sense that I've been able to help our community in different ways when using the BD2K um, dollars and expertise in different ways than we have within our own institute. So that's been very rewarding. Uh, the brain is fun because um, <laughs> I'm all, I, I obviously come from a neuroscience background. I think the key there was to look at, we've funded a lot of neuroscience over the uh, many decades, but the brain was to really ramp up, look at a higher scale, not how we can record from one neuron and understand what it may or may not be doing in the brain, but to start to record from thousands of neurons, to look at uh, lower animals that can tell us things, understand their entire nervous system, all the way up to humans, where we have, for example, are using brain waves to control robotics or various other devices for quadriplegics. Um, so it kind of spans the gamut, and it has a, a very long-term and a very ambitious goal of really understanding brain function. And that's meant to developing a lot of new techniques, which is what my institute does. Yeah. We're, we're looking at emerging technologies. And so we and several other institutes have played major roles in getting that off the ground and continuing to get it off the ground. So it's been a, been a nice, combat, nice adjunct to what I've been mm -hmm. doing already at yeah, definitely. So we're pleased that tomorrow you're going to be the keynote speaker at our Summer Scholars Research Day. And the full day event allows students who've been working at WFM this summer to showcase uh, and present their research projects. 
or um, what will be your message to these students, um, and why are programs like this so important in the development of uh, students' careers? I think these are the, one of the first times that students have to tell their own story to an audience, a very supportive audience, and I think that's extremely important. Before you go off to that national meeting, <laughs> it's very helpful to be able to talk uh, among friends or supportive colleagues to develop your speaking and communication skills, and I think that's the biggest thing. Also to meet um, other people who are doing similar research projects or have similar interests, or at least are open to learning more about what you've been doing, uh, and I think that's that's the key. So we have a number of similar type summer programs that I, I am involved in or run at NIH as well for the same reasons. Yeah. Uh, and I really look forward to hearing uh, some of the stories. It was interesting to me that even uh, at least one of the presentations was going to be on the inner ear, so I'll definitely be interested I, I was in actually more looking at that habits. abstract a little, yeah, little earlier today. I was, I'll be definitely interested in that, but also in all of the things. I have a little bit of knowledge about regenerative medicine. I followed it because I didn't work on my own in that area, but there's a lot of specialized areas that it's evolved or grown into, and I'm really looking forward to hearing more about those from the students. Yeah, and I think you touch upon... Um, being able to communicate your ideas, um, that is a uh, skill as a scientist that if you can really develop that and do it at so many different levels, um, you will be very successful because that's going to lead to new job opportunities, new Mm -hmm. funding opportunities. You can educate the public and get their backing and their support. and conversely, if you're very poor at communicating those ideas, they never get out to, to the scientific off community. Avenues. No, yeah. and I'd like to just enhance what you said about the lay public. I think it's become, as times have gotten tougher financially, it's important for the lay public to understand science at a higher level than it does. Uh, a lot of this is early education, but we as scientists have a strong role to play to communicating what we do, why we do it, how yeah. it benefits society. Uh, there's no one better to make that pitch, and we have to step up. Even though we might rather be in the lab and, and pursue the science that we're doing, I think this is a, a task that we all need to take on at whatever stage our career is. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. We, we talked about a lot of different topics today, but did you have a general take-home message that you'd like to share with our audience? Actually, what's been most um, fun for me is to see the growth of the Institute. I guess I was here on a, on a prior visit maybe eight years ago, oh, wow. uh, and you were simply <laughs> the fourth floor yep. was the Institute, and it was much smaller, obviously, than it is now. It's, it's a real joy to see the breadth of the disciplines represented and the types of people that are here, the types of work that they're doing. It's a very broad-based, particularly from the translational perspective. You know, a lot of this has really run the gambit, uh, and it's been exciting talking to the, the folks today to learn more about what they're doing, and I look forward to hearing more about it tomorrow. But Great. Well, thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it. Not at all. That's all for this episode. Be sure to listen next time for the latest in regenerative medicine. This podcast is a production of Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine, part of Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center. For more information, visit our website at www.wfirm.org. 
or follow us on Facebook or Twitter at WFIRM News.